Let's read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you that we have it today in our hands, in our own mother tongue. We may read it whenever we wish, and we may read it without fear, 
publicly thank you that your word is eternal. It is our guide and our anchor. It instructs us in everything, in all, everything about our life, in faith. It gives us hope. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have sent, whom you have sent to indwell us, to empower us, to guide us, to encourage and Father, we thank you for him. Thank you for our Pastor Barry as he, I pray that you bless him as he opens your word, as he speaks to us. Fill him with your words, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Particular welcome to you if you're visiting today. We're taking a break from a series that we've been doing in the book of Genesis on the story of Joseph. But while taking a break, I think that the subject of Pentecost is very relevant for the story that we've been working through. I hope you're enjoying, for those of you that have followed along with us. I can't wait till next week, get into chapter 43, and it's an, it's an amazing story. But it is a story about Jacob's family being awakened, God using all of the instruments of Joseph and all the authority and power and the hidden identity of Joseph to wake up a family, to wake up Jacob's family, to intervene in a family. And Pentecost is not only God's intervention in a family, but God's intervention in a world, and to wake up not a family, but to wake up nations from their slumber and their sleep in order that they would see the kingdom of God and enter in. And so we will return to the book of Genesis next week, but I think that, that this week is a particularly relevant theme as we consider Pentecost. Culturally speaking, culturally speaking, not theologically speaking, culturally speaking, Pentecost is not an event like Christmas or Easter. Many of you are going to go home and exchange gifts today. Hey, it's Pentecost. Many of you have decorated your house for Pentecost. Many of you are going to invite all your family in for ham, say, well, this is what we do. It's, it's Pentecost. Culturally speaking, it is a very different event than Christmas and Easter. But the significance of Pentecost for the church is every bit as great as Christmas and Easter. All of the riches, all of the treasures, all of the kindness of God that is stored up for his people that is represented in Christmas and Easter is all something that is locked away behind like, a, like walking down a street with, with shops, with stuff that is on the shelves, but, but you can't access it. It is all inaccessible to us in all of its wealth, in all of its capacity. It's, we, we're locked out. And nobody can break in. No thief can come in and simply lay hold of the treasures of God. But the key is freely given at Pentecost. It's like a hydro dam. You ever go up a river where there is a hydro dam and you see the tremendous energy and power that is generated from a dam that is on a river um, generating hydroelectricity. Imagine all of the capacity, all of the power bristling in that hydro dam, but not connected to the grid. 
That is what Christmas and Easter are like without Pentecost. All of the kindness, all of the wealth, all of the riches of, of God's grace, but it's, it's not connected to the grid. And it's completely useless, like a power dam, power generation station without the wires to it. And the kids say, well, you know, Christmas and Easter, that big old gray building over there on the river, what's it for? Well, some people believe, some people believe it has power. You better believe it has power. It has power to turn the lights on. And without it, there is no light, spiritually speaking. Pentecost is an extremely significant day in the life of the church. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 2, is the record of the Spirit being poured out. And the church is burst. You may be familiar with the chapter, Acts chapter 2, and how Jerusalem was filled with people from many nations. And they were there not as a result of Pentecost. They were there for Pentecost. They were there for the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. Penta meaning 50 days, seven weeks after the Passover, which Jewish people had been doing ever since Moses prescribed it. In the law, Leviticus chapter 3, Numbers chapter 28, Moses commanded it. And so for 1,500 years, the nations had been, all the Jews had been gathered from the nations into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. It was a celebration of the harvest. It was a celebration of worship to God for the harvest. But on this Pentecost, where Peter preached, on this Pentecost, it was a time not for people to celebrate the harvest, but it was a time for God to harvest. For God to harvest not wheat, but for God to harvest souls. That's what Pentecost is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. It's a wonderful picture of the Jewish people gathered to celebrate the feast of the harvest. And the Lord of the harvest starts harvesting through the preaching of Peter, who is named the rock. Why the rock? Because on this foundation, I will build my church. And Peter stands and declares that the Lord is risen, that God's harvest has begun, and it is still going on today. This is what the harvest is. It's to take Christmas and Easter. It's to take the, the reality of Jesus coming into this world and the truth of the resurrection and apply them, to, to lock them in to the grid of nations that are the lights aren't on, to wake them up and to show them the capacity of God for kindness and for power. And to bring the people into his kingdom. I've chosen Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not going to read from the whole, or preach from the whole text, but from the prayer of the Apostle Paul that begins at verse 15. It is a prayer of the Apostle of Christ for the church in Ephesus. A church that, of course, is a result, one of the many churches that are a result of, of Pentecost. And here's why I, I've chosen this particular text. It's a little bit personal for me, but I have learned over the years <laughs> through a lot of perplexity, through a lot of sometimes confusion, sometimes frustration, sometimes discouragement when it comes to the workings of God, the unity of God's people, the understanding of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. This is an apostle of our Lord. By the will of God, it says in verse 1. By the will of God, an apostle. And when I'm reading the scripture, 
And an apostle stops. And he says, I'm going to kneel down and I'm going to pray for you. I don't know about you, but it, it stops me dead in my tracks. Because I think here is a place I am safe. Here is a place where I am going to, in the next few words, I am going to hear the mind of God for me. Not anybody's opinion, not any, anybody, any, uh, any churches or any religious experience that I've had, but the mind of God himself. Ever pray for somebody? Or have people pray for you? You know how you pray? When you pray for somebody, you, you pray for the main thing, right? Someone that you pray for, if they, could, if they could hear you pray for them, you would hear what is the dearest and closest thing on your heart for them. What is it that you most want for that person? When it comes to Pentecost, I, I stop on this prayer and I say, Lord, when it comes to the Spirit, what do you want? What is, it, what is uppermost in your mind? Well, how do you want your, your church to proceed? How do you want your church to think? And so it's a prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. And the main point of the prayer is this, that Paul's asking for power. <laughs> you say, well, yeah, that's what I want too. I want power. Yeah, Pastor, Pentecostal power, Pentecost power. I want, but Paul prays for power to grasp heavenly power. That's what he prays for, very specifically. I want you to have the power that you would grasp a power that is heavenly is the main point of the prayer of the Apostle Paul. But I want to press into our hearts and minds and soul this morning on this Pentecost Sunday. And so I'm going to work from three simple points from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and on, through the prayer of the Apostle Paul. The first one is that Paul prays for something necessary, something that is absolutely essential. The second thing, he prays for something that is immeasurable. I love the word immeasurable, and it's in the Bible. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about from the prayer something that is cosmic, something that I completely, beyond my comprehension, but it's cosmic in nature through these through these three simple things from the prayer of the Apostle Paul. First of all, Paul begins with a prayer that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. A wisdom and revelation, prepositional phrase, it's coming. <laughs> In the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. Don't just pray for wisdom. Don't just pray for a revelation. I saw a webpage this morning that says, text me and I'll give you a revelation. Want to know what's going on in 2019 for you? Text me, I'll tell you. Revelation. Governed by a prepositional phrase in the knowledge of him. This is what Paul prays for the church. That you would have a spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, that you, would, that you would see God, that you would experience God. Now, that's significant for me because Paul is praying for a church that already knows Christ. 
In fact, it's a church that already is bearing fruit in Christ. As he says, I'm, I give thanks to God for you, the fruit that I can see in your life. You have faith and you have love for the saints. But in his prayer, it's clear that he makes no assumptions about the church in Ephesus. And by what, what I mean by assumptions is he says, I don't assume that just because you've started well that you know how to continue well. Isn't that great? Don't you hate it when people make assumptions about you or that you feel bad when you make assumptions about other people? Assumptions are dangerous things. We talk about this, I talk, I talk about it on the staff all the time. I think we make too many assumptions. And it's dangerous. Let's not assume about what people think what people need, that people are understanding, that people are tracking. Let's ask them. And let's make sure that, that they understand the main thing. And so what Paul prays for is an affirmation of the way that you have begun in Christ, which is, well, the way that you begin is also the way that you continue. <laughs> it's such a simple but marvelous thing. The Christian life begins by an experience of God himself, where God gives us, through Pentecost, gives us a revelation of God himself and all of his mercy and kindness to us. But the way that the Christian life begins is the way that it also continues. The way that you started is the way that you will continue. Paul's prayer reflects that truth, that that is how the Christian life is lived, by the by, not by a new thing, but, but by the original thing. Being pressed deeper into our lives. And, and Paul knowing all of the experiences that the Ephesians church would, would face, all of the temptations that they would face, all of the, the need that they would have for wisdom and revelation and strength and power. He says, this is what you need. This is the main thing. This is the way that you, you, you continue in the Christian life. And it's a wonderful prayer where, where Paul takes, takes something and, and, and just works it into the life of the church through prayer. Just takes the soul of the church and, and massages it, saying you need to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and experience of God himself. See, the path never changes. It simply penetrates deeper into hearts as we go through all the seasons of life. The experience of God himself is what the Apostle Paul prays for. It's what Pentecost makes possible. For me, it's telling that Paul kneels down and he prays for the one thing to rule all things. It's also telling what he does not pray for. Think of all of the things that he could pray for. All the things that must be in his mind, all the things that are in the course of the, of the life of a church, and all of the things that he could potentially pray for, and the thing that he does pray for. And the one thing that Paul prays for is often the one thing left behind in the midst of a religious life. To thirst for God. It's true, of course, that there are many things involved in the Christian life, and the book of Ephesians will go on and to describe many of the duties, many of the responsibilities, many of the, the spiritual vocations that we live out in so many different places. But there is one thing that rules everything. There is one thing that sustains everything. There is one thing that gives integrity to everything. Do you know what the word integrity means? 
something that doesn't lose its congruency with the original thing. We talk about this on the staff. When people join the staff, they all know they get the talk from, from, from someone on the committee. Sometimes it comes from me. You're a wonderfully gifted person. But do you understand the main thing? Do you understand that your ministry has no integrity? Do you understand that your ministry will have no power? Do you understand that your ministry will not be sustained? unless you understand the main thing, that it all flows from a hunger and a thirst and a desire from God from your own soul that takes all of the duties, all the responsibilities, all of the things that we do and puts them in their proper place, flowing from an experience of God himself. So notice that Paul does not pray for evangelism. Notice he doesn't pray through the Great Commission with him. Now, you started well. Now, go reach Ephesus for Jesus. No, he doesn't pray through, notice he doesn't pray through the, the, the great commandment of, of loving one another. He doesn't begin to launch and pray through all of the responsibilities and duties that Christians rightfully have. And all of those things, I don't mean in any way mean to, to, to lessen the responsibilities and the callings that we have in so many different ways. But this is the one thing that rules all things. The devil loves to make religious duty the main thing instead of the experience of God himself. Isn't that a paradox? The very things that we embrace as religious duty, rightfully so, in terms of our calling from God to do them, can, be, can supplant the main thing because the devil knows our autonomy. He knows our propensity to autonomy. There's an old hymn written by George Crowley called Spirit of God Descend Upon My Heart. The second verse goes like this. I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening of the skies, but take the dimness of my soul. Take the dimness of my soul away. You see, you can't evangelize with a dim soul. <laughs> I can't evangelize with a dim soul. You can't love your neighbor with a dim soul. We can't be the church of Jesus Christ with a dim soul. So for, for new believers, it's really encouraging. If you started, and you have started by experiencing God through the revelation of Jesus Christ, you know what? You're on the path that you're never going to have to find another path. <laughs> Isn't that great? You're already on the path that will take you through all of life. If you're a new believer. You just finished high school. just finished college, university. As Andrew mentioned, it's June. We're marking that season in the life of Many people, many of you will know grads that, that all of the things, oh, what am I going to do? It, what, well, it's a comfort to know that when it comes to life, to Christ, the Christian life, there's just one path. There isn't a hundred different ways to go. There's just one path. Thirst for God. Hunger after him. Praise the Lord for Pentecost. What Paul prays for the Lord has given in abundance. 
The second thing that Paul prays through is something that I take, a, a, verse, a word I take right out of the text. Verse 19. That gives substance to the revelation and the knowledge of him. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Is your God measurable? You measure your God? You know, there's so many images that people talk about how big God is, and all of them have something to do with something that's measurable. <laughs> and I get the idea. Yeah, we're, trying to, we're looking for greatness. But immeasurable is a completely different kind of word. It's not on a scale of, well, this is big and that's really big. That's measurable. A measurable God is not really God at all. And Paul prays for the revelation of God. And the significance of that revelation is that the God who, who shows up, <laughs> the God who actually reveals himself, and Paul knows this when he prays that prayer that they would be filled with a spirit of the knowledge uh, and wisdom of the knowledge of him, he knows what kind of God is going to show up. Not a small God. No one raises the dead by our measure. No one. And so Paul prays for the church. I want you to have power to see real power. Have you ever asked to see God's power? Oh, Lord, I believe you're powerful, but if you, just, if you just show me, if you just show me your power, you know what God would say if you said, Lord, show me your power? He would say, I have. I have. Your Savior is alive. <laughs> He's not in the grave. It's like when they said to Jesus, show us a sign. And he said, I will. I will. And it'll be like Noah. See, the resurrection of, of Christ is not merely a, a historical fact. It is a historical fact. But it's used in the life of the church to demonstrate to us effectively and conclusively the immeasurable power of God. No gods raise the dead except the living God, the almighty God. As I said, I can't wait to get to Genesis chapter 43 next week where there's a particular moment in the text where Jacob bows his knee and puts out his hand and he lays hold of the Almighty. That's next week. Don't read ahead. The resurrection of Christ is a place that is for the church, a place of safety and refuge. If God is immeasurable in power, then the church is unmovable in safety. And it's like in this prayer, Paul is picking up the church that he loves dearly and wants to see thrive and do well. And he's picking up the church and, and in this prayer, talking about the, the immeasurable power of God, it's like, he, like in the, the words of the old Fanny Crosby hymn, it's like he's, he's tucking them into the cleft of the rock. You are safe here. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 91, that 
You are safe in the shadow of the wing of the Almighty. He's a refuge and a strength for you. He is immeasurable in his power. The third thing that Paul prays for is something that is very, very cosmic in nature. Verse 19, look, and, and that, speaking of God's immeasurable, this is all one sentence in the Greek from verse 15 through chapter 23. It's all, it's all one sentence, and I'm just obviously plucking a few words and ideas out of it. But the reason it's such a long sentence is because Paul uses verbs, and then he uses every single possible question, answers every possible question that is raised by every verb. I hope you love grammar, right? I already told you how significant prepositions are. Verbs are amazing. But verbs have to be, have to be answer the questions. Who, what, when, why, where, who cares? And Paul answers all of the question, all of the possible questions through all of his verb, verbs through this particular text. That's why it's such a, a long sentence. Look at verse 20. Speaking of God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, where? Seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. How many things? All things. Where? Under his feet. Why? For the church. Put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. Pentecost birthed a church that is cosmic in nature because it's related to a savior as its head that is cosmic in identity and power. In other words, Pentecost birthed a church whose identity transcends anything else in this world that, that we could belong to. Because it belongs to this Savior, where all authority and dominion and power transcends everything else in this world. It is a heady prayer for the church. There's nothing else in this world that identity that you could possibly belong to that is even close to anything like this with its cosmic nature. The world doesn't understand it. We can't go to the world and say, well, how should we govern ourselves? How should, how should we organize ourselves? How should we run ourselves? What does leadership look like? What does it look like to have goals and vision and, and all this stuff? You know what? The church is completely unique in its identity. And the world doesn't understand our wisdom at all. Because our wisdom comes from being vitally connected to a head. We're the body. He's the head. We're connected to a head that is otherworldly. That is the nature of the church. And so don't ever succumb to the idea that just because we do churchy things that we somehow, that makes us a church. Right? Okay? It's true of all of us. What makes us a church 
is a real and vital union to the head of the church. That is our identity. There is no path for us to be a real church. It doesn't matter how successful we are. It doesn't matter how, how big we are. It doesn't matter how rowdy we are. It doesn't matter how whatever we are. There's no other path to be in a real church except that each of us be connected in a real way, in a vital way, in a practical way. I'm not talking about unpractical things here. As Paul will go on to expound it in every aspect of their life through the rest of the epistle. But this is the main thing. Our life is hidden in Christ, Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. And this is where our unity comes from. Do you ever, ever think, Lord, and pray for unity in the church? Yeah, I do. Ever get perplexed sometimes by the, the lack of unity in the church? Think, well, you know, there's more than just patience needed. More than just a, a clearer note from people in authority. There's only one thing that truly unites the church. And that is that we all experience being connected to the same head. I find it really discouraging sometimes to look at the church and think, Lord, what, what's going on? Where, where are we? Like, and not just, our, not just any local church, but the, the church universal, the church everywhere. Why are there so many different kinds of Christians when really there isn't many different kinds of Christians? It's particularly perplexing for people from Muslim faith, apparently, when they become a Christian. They go, well, I'm a Christian. And then they begin to survey the, the vast horizon of everything that calls itself Christian. And where do you go? How do you make your way? If you want unity in the church, seek union with Christ. Personally, all of us, if you want unity in the church, there's no other path to it. Seek a union with Christ. And what you will find is that you will begin to see that there's some things that just aren't significant. <laughs> They're just not. They're just not that important. But you will have, you will be bound together with other people who are bound to the same head on the things that are absolutely essential. Here's the amazing and humbling thing about all of Christ's cosmic authority and power is that he uses it to serve us. All of the dominion, all of the authority, all of the cosmic way that Christ is described over all things and, and all things under him, that he uses all of that dominion, all of that authority to serve. He has a very real dominion. He has a very real authority, but it is exercised in service to the church. Isn't that an amazing thing that Paul prays that the church would understand this? And it becomes the pattern for all authority all the time, everywhere in the church and through, through the rest of this epistle and in the kingdom of God. This becomes the pattern for how authority is used. Has God given you authority in some realm, in some space? Has God given you power? Use it to serve. 
It is how God uses the authority of Christ that he has attained over all things in this world. And he exercises it in service to the church. Let me say this in conclusion. That this prayer help us, helps us find substance to the words, the simple, profound words that every Christian should know and believe that Jesus loves me. You believe that? Jesus loves me. But what a prayer like this does is it begins to add substance. It begins to add food to the conviction and the belief that I am loved by Jesus, by sending a counselor, by sending a helper that helps us to grasp how Jesus employs all of his authority, uses all of his power and his dominion to keep us safe. I've been reading through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel recently, and I came across the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David says to the prophet Nathan, he says, Nathan, I want to build the Lord a house. It's not right that in God and all of his power and majestic dominion and authority that he has shown by delivering his people out of Egypt, all his cosmic power, it's not right that he should dwell in a tent. And Nathan says, go ahead, the Lord be with you. And the Lord appears to Nathan and says, no, go tell David that he's not going to build me a house. His son Solomon is going to build me a house. So Nathan goes back to David and he says, David, you are not going to build the Lord a house. And he uses the word house. God is going to build you a house. And what David rightly perceived of all of that transcendent power and authority and the majesty that was shown to God's people and all of his deliverance of, of people and God's and his desire to build uh, the, the Lord a house. David, Nathan says God is going to take all of that authority, all of that dominion, all of that power, not to have you build him a house, but he's going to build you a house. And of course he did. The house of David, of which our Lord Jesus came to fulfill. And David goes into the presence of the Lord. And he's just been told that you're not going to build the Lord a house. God's going to use all of his power to build you a house. And David I don't know, probably crumples down in a heap in front of the Lord. And he says, oh Lord, what can I say? What do you say? What do you say to a cosmic Lord who has all dominion and power and authority who says, I'm going to use all that I have to serve you, to keep you safe? What, what do you say? David said, oh Lord, you are very great. You are very, very mercy and kindness. Please pray with me. Our gracious and merciful God, thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for the history of the events of this day. And I pray that the work of the Spirit would be genuine, real, powerful in the midst of this congregation, in the midst of your church everywhere. Unite us, save us, help us, keep us, I pray. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.